Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at provisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Olark in San Francisco, California is looking for a senior UX designer. We've also got positions from Society of Grownups, Buffer, Friends of the Web, NPR, 18F, and the U.S. Digital Service. So check out the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs and find your next job today. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry. And before we get to this week's interview, I've got a brief announcement. So for the last two months of this year, that's November and December for those that are listening, there's going to be two episodes per week. So along with the regular Monday interviews that come out every Monday, 10 a.m. Eastern, there will also now be new interviews every Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern. Again, this is only going to be for November and December of this year. So that's twice the revision path a week. That means I'm going to be able to give you more interviews from some great black designers and developers out there. A huge thanks to the donors of Fund Club for really making this happen. Thank you so much. Now, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. MailChimp is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. Join more than 7 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 500 million emails every day. MailChimp has also recently announced MailChimp Pro, which is a powerful set of new tools for MailChimp that include multivariate testing, delivery and compliance insights, and comparative reports. Sign up today at MailChimp.com. Do you need a new domain for your next project? Check out Hover. Each domain comes with free private domain registration, unlimited domain forwarding, and world-class customer support. They also have this really cool new feature called Hover Connect. And Hover Connect allows you to automatically connect any of your Hover domains to popular services like Tumblr, Squarespace, and Shopify. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use the promo code 100 episodes and save 10% off your purchase. Creative Market sells graphics, fonts, themes, photos, and a whole lot more starting at only $2 per item. They give away a selection of free goods every Monday, of course today is Monday, and they've got great bundle promotions every month. And if you see something else that you like, use our promo code REVISIONPATH and save 20% off your purchase. Now here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. We're still holding strong at 25 patrons right now for a combined total of $184 per month. A huge thanks to all of you who have already pledged your support and appreciation for the show. I really do appreciate it. If you want to become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some really great perks like special giveaways, early access to future episodes, or a monthly Google Hangout with me and other Revision Path supporters, head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge levels are super affordable. They start at just $1 per month. Now let's get on to this week's interview. I talked with Ihani Ekechukwu, who is a software developer in Austin, Texas. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Um, I'm Ihani Ekechukwu. I'm a software engineer at IBM Watson Life. So 
So talk to me about what IBM Watson life is. When I think of IBM Watson, the first thing that sort of pops in mind for me is Jeopardy. Mm -hmm. And they had the big Watson computer answering question. Yeah, so in answer to the first question, Watson life is a group within IBM Watson. And what we're responsible for is bringing applications and products to the consumer rather than being a tra- um, bringing business to business applications that IBM is traditionally known for. In terms of Watson, most people know Watson in regards to Jeopardy and beating Ken Jennings and all of that. But in reality, we like to describe Watson as a cognitive computing system. So what that means is Watson is ingesting, what Watson is able to do is ingest large amounts of unstructured data and find answers within that data. I don't know how much of this you can, I guess, release or divulge, but how is it finding those answers? Is it just through like contextual data linking up? How does that work? You'd have to ask the researchers that. I don't write the algorithm. <laughs> I'm not an NLP researcher. I just build web application, well, web and mobile applications. <laughs> so what are some ways that Watson is being used? I mean, outside of, I guess, a game show content. Yeah. So I can talk about like my last project. I was on IBM Chef Watson and the Chef Watson project is Watson ingested about, I think, at least 5,000 recipes. And what it did was break down each and every single ingredient within, excuse me, within the recipes and then analyze their chemistry and discover new flavor combinations from various recipes. So that was pretty cool. So that's an example of using Watson's power. So that's kind of the main project that you work on then is with Watson Life. Uh, yeah, that was my main project. I'm at, I started a new project recently, but that one's under wraps, so I can't really talk much about it yet. Okay. How did you first get started at IBM? So I started off working at IBM in systems. I was in the AIX department. My first internship there, I made, I was responsible for creating a system for, I've created an Android application for administering IBM power systems, like their boxes. And then the second project I did for that internship was an automated security project that hooked into one of IBM's existing security products, but then allowed the users to also administer and and fix things from the Android device and get real-time push notifications. So that's how I really started off at IBM. Nice, nice. So you went to school at University of Notre Dame, is that right? Yep. Talk to me about your time there. What was the program like and everything? Uh, You know, the computer science program was very valuable in the sense that it didn't really teach me how to do a lot of the stuff that I do now. I'm mostly self-taught with all of that. But I used to bash on the program a lot because I was like, oh, my God, it's all this theory, but not enough like actual application. But now I think about it, I really am glad that they taught us the theory behind it and not the application. And I like learned how to do that myself. So it's just like any other program. The only difference is we started learning how to code way later in the game than other like computer science schools. Like we don't, I didn't start learning to code until sophomore year. We don't take other fundamentals until like junior year and senior year. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is, that's a little bit later than usual. Yeah. We have this college, this thing called the first year studies that all freshmen are in. And like in general, like computer science is in the College of Engineering. So we have to take these courses called Intro to Engineering. And that's where you learn MATLAB and how to use LabVIEW. And I find it detrimental for computer science majors because I never use anything from that class after freshman year, whereas other engineering majors may use it. Computer science majors do not. So I found I have that's one of my beasts with the program, but they're making strides to improve it and listen to feedback from alumni. So step in the right direction. So you say you used to rag on the course. Do you feel like it's prepared you? I mean, for what you're doing now, since you say you're also kind of self-taught? 
it taught me how to think. I definitely think that like indirectly, it's really benefited me. I can't say it's like directly responsible for where I'm at now. I mean, I think of course it helped, but like computer science is just a way of finding like I think computer science as a area of study is just a way of like learning how to think or teaching you how to think and solve problems and create algorithms. And I think that's really helped in sure like interview processes and all that jazz, but also understanding stuff like data modeling and API design and all of that jazz. So I think it's really been beneficial in that regard. I think my research has more of a tailored aspect, has more like has helped me more to get where I am at now than anything else because I did research in like data mining and machine learning during undergrad. Yeah, when I was a math major, I guess I sort of felt the same way because, well, I think with math, it's even more abstract because I'm not a math teacher. I'm not a mathematician. I'm a designer. But like it does teach you how to think. It teaches you how to arrange and think things sequentially and logically. So in hindsight, I can see how it would help, but like I'm not doing the mean value theorem yeah, every day. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I get what you're saying there. I get what you're saying. Yeah, and computer science is just another like is just a fancy form of mathematics, right? They're very it's just a subset of math. So speaking of your degree in computer science, I was, you know, doing my research and I see that you also have a degree in design. Yeah. I can talk about that a little bit. So please do. Yeah, yeah. So at Notre Dame, there's a program called the Riley program. And what it is, is that only engineering majors can do this program. And what you do is that you choose a degree in engineering. And so I was computer science, obviously, for me. But then you also can choose any degree from the or any major from the College of Arts and Letters and to concurrently take classes for that as well. And so I had a couple of upperclassmen buddies that were in the program. Like a lot of mechanical engineers did it with an econ for supply chain theory. A lot of uh, mechanical or aerospace people also did it with industrial design for, obviously, product design and all that jazz. Me, personally, I noticed that the applications and, like, all this UIs I was building my sophomore year and early on in my college career, and even that my uh, peers were building as well, weren't really user-friendly or aesthetically pleasing so I decided to actually take, join the Riley program and add a degree in design so I could get that design thinking. And it's a five-year program. I did it in four and a half years because I was not trying to stay in the Midwest winter as like that long. So, but <laughs> yeah, it was a really valuable program. And it's really been, it's a lot, most people look at my uh, resume and they say, oh, you did computer science and design. I'm just like, yeah, but it's kind of like people are still skeptical of it. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm more technical when it comes to career interests than I am like designer. But I did it for like the knowledge, not really to do it as a whole career and just to help me out passively. Well, no, I was going to ask because, you know, you sort of spoke before about the the computer science curriculum yeah. not being that great. Oh, I but love was the, the design. Oh, the design curriculum was amazing. <laughs> but it's not HDI, though. It's not human-computer interaction. It's a traditional print design curriculum. Although we have electives like interaction design, human-computer interaction. I took a variety of design classes from, like, um, design drawing, which is, like, sketching and, like, rapid prototyping, and interaction design courses. And just taking all of these design courses, it was a nice break from the heavy onslaught of technical information from the College of Engineering. And also, I found it beneficial because it gave me a lot of creative inspiration and would allow me to come up with new ideas because I think computer science helps you solve problems, but I also think that design helps you identify problems. And that's something that I really took away from the design program. Do you think that you kind of bring both of those skills 
to your current work as a software engineer or is it just more coding than design? It's more coding than design, but but I do bring my design skills to the table in whenever we're doing, whenever our designers are presenting um, the user interface and the mock-ups that they have. If I notice something that I feel is an anti-pattern or if there's a better way of doing it, I'll definitely give a critique and say, hey, it's like a good way that you've done it right now, but wouldn't it be smoother or a better experience if you tried to do it this way instead? And like, can we mock that out and see how that plays out instead? And they can go from there. I'm not doing direct design work and creating like mocks and assets, but I can give, I know how to give a valid constructive critique to our designers. I think it helps also because like being both a designer and a developer, I can be that bridge in communication between the engineers and the designers. So if there's miscommunication, I can kind of help like straighten out what each party is trying to say. Now, is this your first job kind of out of school? I'm, I mean, oh, yeah. Sort of I've even been out of college for a year. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm, only, yeah, I'm fresh out. I graduated back yeah, in December you're... 2014. Oh, wow. Yeah, you're fresh in the game. So this is all shiny and new right now. Yeah. (laughs) That's good, though. It's good to have that enthusiasm, at least, you know. Yeah. We'll see how long it lasts. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) still got it, but who knows how long it's going to last for. So what software are you using? What sort of programming stack are you using when you're mostly working at IBM? At work, last project I was on, database is CouchDB or Cloudant. I'm in the back end, Node.js, well, it depends. Like Watson Services uses a multitude of languages. Some of it's in Java. It's all over the place. But I was primarily writing uh, Node.js in the back end with CouchDB. But then the front end on the uh, Chef Watson project, we didn't really have a front end framework, but now we're migrating towards Angular and rewriting our application using Angular. So that's uh, really nice. And the project I'm on now, we're actually using Python in the back end and MongoDB. And in the front end, we're using React. And now what about when you're personally coding? What do you use? Oh, um, whenever it comes to personal projects, um, I've been dabbling with Elixir um, in the back end recently, but my bread and butter is a Postgres database with Ruby on Rails in the back end. And then I use Ember.js in the front end. And I'm, that's kind of like I'm pretty much an Ember evangelist. So I always get geeked over that. What is it about Ember that you really like? I really started learning it during college and it made it just it has such strong conventions and does so much for you that makes it very easy to, and very easy and very quick to build out these proof of concepts and these applications. And like I think I'm really in love with this routing system and it's data and it's, uh, Ember data. And what that allows for is your root, your data and the state of your application and UI always to be in sync with one another just because of how Ember is designed as a framework and its router and Ember data. So for people that might just be starting out with web development, is that what you'd recommend they sort of start with? Yeah, I think so. I think Ember's conventions and community is such novice friendly and like its documentation is good enough that people could get up and running with Ember pretty quickly. Like I did one tutorial with it and it was like my first real framework that I learned and it just clicked for me like that. Now it may not, I may just be an isolated example, but pretty much after you, if you like go and ask questions in the Slack channel, they'll be glad to help you out. And the community's awesome, really friendly. And yeah, definitely suggest that they should uh, check it out at least and give it a shot. It's good that it has that, that nice, friendly sense of community. I oh, think definitely. For anyone, that's, for anyone that's just starting out, it's important Very to have important. 
yeah, it's important to have that. So you don't want to uh, kind of run into documentation that you don't necessarily understand. It has mm-hmm. a steep learning curve already. So it's good that it has that that sort of built-in community to tap into. Yeah, for sure. Now, I saw from looking on your website, you've certainly built a number of just kind of, I want to say like just for fun type projects. Mm-hmm. What's the last thing you built that was just for fun? So outside the Facebook page on like your application, so actually I can talk about that. And actually I've been working on something recently. But okay. last thing I really built just for fun that I actually shipped out there was Facebook page in Liker. It was a, I actually just built it over a weekend to see if I could build an Ember application with no backend whatsoever and just using a third-party API. So it's using Facebook's API. I hooked into it, and it just made it easy to scroll down and quickly click and unlike Facebook pages that you had previously liked. Because for some reason back in high school, I was really bored. And I would like any stupid like Facebook page like, oh... <laughs> You know, when you look at your best friend, they know exactly what you're thinking or whatever, you know, stuff like that. So I wanted to get rid of those. <laughs> does the Unliker work for just pages or does it work for posts too? Just pages. Posts okay. are like way, I think are way more hard to like get a hold of like which posts you've liked. That makes sense. But it's cool because like that was January 10th that I shipped that out and it got to the front page of Packer News that day. And on, also, it was number one on Product Hunt on that day as well. So that was really cool. Nice. Congratulations. Yeah, I appreciate it. That was like the blow up, I guess. It was a hectic day answering emails <laughs> and stuff like that. Do you know if a lot of people are still actively using it? You know, Is there a way you can tell that? I have Google Analytics, but I didn't really care enough to like keep track of it constantly because like not it was just something I whipped up in a weekend. But I know it gets like a fair amount. It gets at least like I think a hundred or so users a day, which I think is pretty good. That's, that's pretty. But good. It's one yeah. of those applications that if you use it once, you don't really have a reason to return back to it because it served its purpose. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that is true. So walk me through a typical day for you. Like when you, you get up, you go to work, what's what's kind of a typical day? Get up, go to work, scrum call. So Well, depends. It used to be like 9 a.m. Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I had scrum, so our daily stand-up. That's 30 minutes. Other than that, normally I get there a little bit early, check email, see if there's anything that needs really that I need to focus my attention on. So if something broke or if there's a bug, a critical bug that needs fixing, Outside of that, most of the time I just go to work, do my daily stand-up, start looking at where I left off. Like I have a notepad beside my desk where I take notes on what I need to get done and like progress on everything. And normally I start just going down the list and what of things I have prioritized and finishing them up, going to our issue track tracker on the web and closing out my stories for the sprint, just getting things done. Then you know, of course you take breaks for like lunch and I have occasional meetings like like since uh, my team is distributed, especially my new team, I'm actually the only one in Austin. Everybody else is in New York, Denver, or North Carolina. So we have meetings like eh, twice a week or so. Yeah, mm-hmm. to sync up and like everybody like outside daily stand up, report your progress and what's going on and what's new, or if you have any blockers, and just make sure everybody is on the same page. So yeah, I see that you've been doing some speaking. I know before we talked about. Ruby on Rails and Ember and, and stuff like that. But you also do speaking at conferences kind of around these things as well. What has your, your conference experience has been like? Well, my first conference speech is actually October 20th. And, but I've been, oh, yeah, nice. I've been giving the talk that I've been, um, I've been giving the talk that I'm going to give at this conference at local meetups in, here in Austin. Actually, I just gave it mm-hmm. last Thursday at the local Ember meetup. 
And it's just speaking has been pretty cool. Like you get nervous and you start freaking out. Like, what if I mess up? What if I start stuttering like an idiot? What if I don't know what I'm talking about? But I think really it's just I think the cool thing about giving a talk is especially when it's about a framework is that it really is a way for you to actually test your knowledge and test what you actually know. And in preparing for it, I probably spent like at least 40 hours preparing for this talk and like between presenting, practicing and making slides and editing has been hectic, but it's wow. been a good experience. And like I have friends that, um, at these meetups that take notes for me and offer suggestions for improvement, especially those that I've given talks before. So it's been a good like experience with the practice run so far. And I'm, ho- I'm excited for like the real deal in October. Hoping to crush that. How long is the talk? You know, whenever I first started giving it, it was 40 minutes long. But I cut out a few slides, like two to four slides. But now I can give it in 30 minutes. It's not bad. Yeah. Is that about how much time you've got to give it during the conference? I think so. I think 20 to 30. I'm probably going to go a little bit over, but it's okay. But I think like 30 minutes for like 130 slides, that's pretty good. Wow. That's really good. 30 minutes for 130. Jesus. Are you doing live coding on stage? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not that bold. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But I have code examples I talked through in my uh, presentation. Uh Yeah. I didn't realize how powerful Keynote was until I started doing like this conference talk, though, for real. (laughs) A hundred and thirty. Wow. I tip my hat to you. (laughs) Whenever I've done presentations, I am like... First of all, I never spend a, a ton of time on them. Yeah. 99% of the time, I will do the presentation the day before I have to give yep. it. Sounds- and it will be slides and pictures, usually like, you know, full picture will fill up the slide. And when I look at the slide and see the picture, then I can start talking. Yeah. But like, other than that, I'm never putting a ton of time into, into that. So I, I mean, I always appreciate when people are really meticulous and, and thoughtful about that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, I kind of just wing it. I don't know. That's probably not the best way to do I mean, it. Hey, but... do it live. I mean, sometimes you <laughs> have to do it. You got to do it to them. Well, I think you also find, you know, at, at conferences, it's it can be highly exaggerated until you get on stage. Mm-hmm. Like the whole gravity around speaking can be highly exaggerated For sure. until the moment you get on stage. Because oftentimes, and it will depend on the conference, it will depend on the venue, things of that nature. I think people always think they're going to go and it's going to be a full house. Yeah. Like, if the auditorium seats 200, there's going to be 200 people in there. Yeah. There's probably going to be about 30 people in there. Word. <laughs> like, like, you probably will be more nervous at your local meetup where the proximity is closer uh-huh. than in a larger venue when there's you know more space between you and the audience. And the audience, honestly, can tend to be fairly forgiving. Not saying that you can just... Not going to be like, boo, you suck. Like, no. Yeah, no. I mean, if they do, it'll be on Twitter. But other than that, (laughs) they're not going to do it to your face. You know what I mean? But oftentimes, especially for technical talks, I think that the audience can be fairly forgiving, particularly if it's your first talk. Mm -hmm. So I think because you've already done this a few times locally, you've went over it a few times, you'll be fine. It'll be good. It'll be good. And you say this is your first speaking kind of speaking experience do you want to do more in the future oh, yeah i mean i guess if you can't really tell i like talking so sure i'm always <laughs> down to give another conference talk and it's cool like i'm looking forward to giving more talks in the future it's just hard thinking of proposals for actually making talks somebody just reached out to me they're like oh what you know you want to talk on front porch i'm just like okay but i don't know what i'm gonna talk about i really like ember so i guess i'm gonna talk about ember and 
it's worked out. So I'm hoping I can like maybe think of some new things to talk about with Ember or give this talk again at other conferences. And where is Front Porch? Is that in Austin? No, it's in Dallas. Okay, it's in Dallas. That's not that far. Yeah. That's not too bad. Yeah, I'm probably just going to drive the night before. I just want like a three hour or so hour drive. I'm always really interested in sort of how conferences are doing and putting together their speaker panels because usually it's one of two things. One, they will have a formal call for proposals Mm -hmm. where people can submit things and they sort of make it more egalitarian that way. Mm -hmm. And then the second way, of course, is that conferences will just choose whoever they want to speak and then they just put that up on the website and that's it. Yeah. And I feel like with either of those attempts, conference organizers still tend to get dinged when it comes to the to the topic of diversity. Mhm. Definitely. And I think on the outreach end, maybe they're not doing the outreach to communities where these people are, but then also on the end where people just put these panels together without any input, they're just going off of who they know, they're just going off of their kind of personal Rolodex, mm-hmm. so to speak. Yeah, and it's probably it's probably not a diverse Rolodex, at least often or frequently it isn't. So I do want to talk about diversity. I know that you mentioned diversity on your podcast, mm-hmm. Two Black Nerds, and I want to talk about Two Black Nerds a bit later. For so sure. the $64 question, of course, is why is diversity important? I mean, I think diversity is important because I'm all about problem solving. If you have diversity of thought, well, if you have diversity of both like race, gender, sexuality, et cetera, you're going to be able to not only identify different problems of like you have to your users aren't homogenous your users of your product or most likely are not homogenous and there are different things to consider for, with different racial groups different genders different sexualities etc i think not only is diversity important for diversity of thought but also think diversity is important for kind of general quality control as well because something may come off as uh Something may not be considered offensive in one culture, but another culture may find that really offensive. Or you just can have better air checking and air handling, or at least just better quality products if you take into account multiple groups of people or like all of your users, just not one, you know? So Brian Douglas, who is one of our, our Patreon patrons, had a question for you. Yeah. Or he wants to know from you, how is the diversity tech scene in Austin and is there at all a focus on diversity, organizations, meetups, et cetera? Hmm, diversity tech scene in Austin is pretty lacking. I mean, I haven't met that many black developers here or black software engineers, and I haven't met many black designers. Even at my own personal job, like I'm the only black individual, to my knowledge, in my entire like organization of IBM Watson Life, like nest 30 people. Hmm. I've been actually, like, in terms of regards to the meetup, I've been actually trying to think of actually starting up a meetup like Coding While Black or uh, Color Coded or Color Coding, something, play on words, to get black developers and have a nice black developer meetup up and uh, running. But I think there's a lot of room for improvement in that regard, or at least banding all of us together. Well, I mean, you've also got, you know, UT Austin right there. That's a... I think that's a good resource, hopefully. Well, yeah, I mean, they're not really at diversity. I think they're only like 3% black, but yeah, <laughs> you know. And I mean, let's see well, hey, just... I mean, if you do a meetup, 3% is better than yeah, nothing, Yeah, 3% right? of like 50,000, I mean, that's a sizable sum. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't hurt to reach out. I mean, I think doing those kinds of local efforts oh, definitely. always helps because everyone sort of might be operating in a silo. Yeah. And like, there's an organization called Roots Technology. So I actually mentor with Roots Technology. It's just a group that 
I'm a buddy of mine in Austin founded. And what we do is we actually meet every other Saturday and for three hours we teach black and Latino youth and also adults if they're interested how to code. So we're like taking them through Code Academy and have answering their questions and explaining things to them, explaining all the concepts from Code Academy and each of the resources. And there are some of them that really pick up on it really quickly and breeze through it. And then with them, we can then make more personalized projects and say, all right, use what you've learned to build this out. And if you need any help, ask us. And then there's others that may not get it at first, but we're working on it and they're improving and they're enthusiastic of like what they're learning and really excited to start coding. So with IBM, you said that you're pretty much the only person of color on your team or the only black person? Only black person. We actually have we have person. a female Latina QA engineer. And I think that we have another Middle Eastern dude on our team. But outside of that, it's only uh, us three. <laughs> yeah. And I know a lot of the conversation in diversity and tech has really revolved around those diverse workforce numbers as it relates to race and ethnicity. Mm -hmm. Why are tech companies so shitty when it comes to having diverse workforces? Actually, I'm going to give a personal, I'm going to give a personal story, like a personal opinion on why I like realize this because the tech interview process is one of the most like scarring, not like, yeah, emotionally scarring and terrifying things I've ever experienced. Like I interviewed at Google, I interviewed at Facebook I just felt like my intelligence was belittled by the entire process. And you don't necessarily feel confident going into those or being put on the spot like that. And I've seen this like kind of self-doubt being creeped whenever I went to recruit for Watson at uh, Florida A&M. There's a lot of lack, like, I think it's something that we really struggle with. At least I personally struggle with as a black man, like self-doubt in my knowledge and always doubt myself, even though I may know something really well or I may make a mistake. But then you're like really scared of having those mistakes being attributed to your color. You're not giving the benefit of the doubt. And I feel like sometimes in the interview process, there's always these unconscious social biases that people experience and may attribute to a group of people that may not be accurate. So I think that's one of the reasons why tech interview process can be pretty crappy. But at the same time, I also feel that once again, like a lot of these companies are pretty good at recruiting like through referrals and once, like we discussed it earlier, how people have very non-diverse networks of people. And well, if you're, at least from my experience, the tech industry, a lot of the non-black developers, their like friend group or like the most of the engineers in the company aren't people of color. So whenever it comes to referring people, they most likely know more non-people of color than they do actual people of color. I'm so glad that you mentioned the interview process. I hate it so Uh, much. It's such bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) I'm saying I think, but I also, full disclosure, I do work with companies on helping them to recruit more people of color in their design and tech fields and, and departments and things. And so there's three problems, and it's all in that interview sort of chain, I want to call it. So the first is actually getting the people into the pool like into the hiring pool. And the problem may come from, and I'll just be honest here, the problem I found ends up coming from not necessarily the people of color, but from the people that are applying because they just don't have everything together that they need Yeah, that I think the company is looking for. So for example, if the company wants to see your resume and a cover letter and your portfolio site, but you don't have a cover letter 
mm-hmm. instead of a portfolio site, you submit like a PDF with 40 links in it. Like that's not what they're looking yeah. for. Like you're making it harder on them to consider you for the position. Yeah, and definitely. Instead of kind of giving them what they're asking for. And I'm putting that up not as the definitive reason, but I am putting that up as a reason that I have seen a lot. But that can, yeah, and that's a very valid critique and something that I really saw. I'm lucky in that I had a lot of technical interviews or at least a lot of like opportunities to interview at companies. And it just took me constant refinement of not only my personal brand through my website, but also like mm-hmm. my resume, like a lot of recruiters look at my resume and luckily I'm, I did design. So I know how to make an aesthetically pleasing resume and be like, wow, this is the most beautiful like technical resume I've ever seen in my life. And like, oh, did you like, did you design this? I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> you know, and yep. it's all about pres- degree in design yeah, right here. Exactly. And, <laughs> and like before, whenever I was using Microsoft Word templates or maybe not even like having the best uh, information architecture when it comes to like our actual present, like presentation of the information on my resume, I wasn't selling myself as well as I could have been doing, but I just t- took that constant like tweaking and refinement in order to improve like my resume and get it out there and get it to like the best version. And I've just stuck with this version for like two years and it's been doing pretty well. And I can see how in that pool that it can be sort of that issue of self-worth kind of, as you mentioned. Yeah. And I tell this to designers. So what I'll see is designers will have a website and their website will talk about, these are all the reasons that you should hire me. And it's like, I can do logos, I can do websites, I can do print, mm-hmm. I can do this, I can do that. Instead of their website showing, I'm a designer, like here's my design thinking, here's yeah. the thought that I put into this project, here's the thought that I put into that project, because that's really what the company wants to see. They sure. want to see, how can you take a problem and create a solution? Almost definitely. Not, not your like elite Photoshop skills, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they want to see that you're more than just a set of hands. For sure. And what I end up seeing in the pool, and I'm not a recruiter by any means, so no one please shoot me for this. But what I end up seeing is just a set of a lots of sets of hands in the pool. Just I can do this and I can do this. And I can do After Effects. Mm-hmm. And, okay. Everyone, not everyone, but the people that are applying for this position, all of you have probably that same set of skills. You got to figure out a way to set yourself apart from everybody else. Right. What's setting you apart? So that's the first part of it. The second part is the sort of opaque black box of hiring. Like that's the actual interview when you get in there, whatever the coding interview is yeah. or, or or what have you. You know, you say you've been interviewed by Google and other companies. I've been interviewed by Google, by not by Facebook. Well, yeah, by Facebook, Google, Facebook, Microsoft. And it is that same kind of weird thing where it's you wonder if they're like psyching you out. And I guess in a way they probably are, but it doesn't feel like you're really, I think demonstrating Mm -hmm. skill Mm -hmm. as much as you are trying to like beat a game. Yeah, exactly. And I've been interviewed at startups too. And I actually have enjoyed the interview process at startups way more than I have at bigger companies just because it's more actual, how do you solve this problem? And they're not going to put you on a whiteboard to give you a computer and say, all right, let's do some programming. Or given this right. problem, how are you going to code this out in this language? Or you have this language on your resume, code up a solution for me. Or I'll, I'll ne- yeah. No, I was going to say, I'll never forget when I interviewed at Google, and it was for a design position. And they told me that everyone that works at Google is a software engineer. And I'm like, that's weird. That doesn't sound right. Yeah. Like, so you know? the, administ- the administrative staff are software engineers, and the chef is a software engineer, the yeah. janitorial staff. That doesn't make any sense. 
And so I went in for a design position. They probably asked you some crazy they, computer science. Right. The, the recruiter routed me into like this software engineer position. And I told him, I said, look, I graduated college in 2003. I have not taken a C++ course since 1999. I could not yeah. tell you a C in, a C out, a pointer. I have a vague idea of what these terms mean, but I have not applied them or used them in anything upon which I would be applying for a job for. Yeah. I don't think I should be, you know, doing a software engineer test. Yeah. And he's like, oh, no, no, it should be fine. It should be great. You'll be fine. And then he gives me links of things to study, yep. like I got big O notation and this sort of stuff. And I'm like, dude, I just told you, I don't know this stuff. Yeah. And you want me to like cram for an interview for a position that I'm not qualified for, that yeah. I know I'm not qualified for, because that's not what I applied for. <laughs> and the recruiter's like, oh, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Yeah. So I look over the stuff. I have a, a kind of knowledge of it, but not really, because, again, it's not what I majored in. It's not what my degree is in. I do the interview with the software engineer from Google, and I think the interview lasts all of five minutes <laughs> before he's just like, I don't think this is a good fit. <laughs> That's so <laughs> messed up. And I go back to the recruiter, and I'm like, you Yo, set me up. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. You set me up. This is not <laughs> what I applied pissed. for. You pushed me into this position. And this was not what I wanted. And he's like, well, if we have other positions open at Google in the future, and it's just like, kiss my ass. Yep, essentially. But it makes me wonder if that is a similar experience that a lot of people might be having when it comes to these kinds of companies where they're just sort of routed into wherever the need is and not necessarily what they're good at. I've heard that's a so bad critique of Google, though. Like, a lot of people, like, I mean, Google has become a badge of honor of a company to work at, but... At the same time, yeah. a lot of people there that get stuck on BS projects that aren't really like customer facing or didn't really influence anything or internal tooling. But, you know, they can just say, oh, I worked at Google, you know, and everybody's like, oh, my God, you're next Googler. That's but true. like, nah, like I don't <laughs> want to like if I go somewhere and I'm not applying what I like went to school for, or what I've tailored my career around in any way, shape or form. I'm not going to be happy there. I'm probably just not going to like want to work for your company. I'm probably like yeah. I, I dip out. If like that was the actual case. And yeah, I mean, it's interesting how everyone and I'm not saying everyone, but I've certainly noticed this recently. There are a lot of hot takes about black folks in the tech industry after they've left the cushy job, after they've left the Twitter or the Google mm -hmm. or et cetera. Which I mean, I can understand that. You don't you know, you don't shit where you eat. I get that. Yeah, you don't want to sure. you don't want to do that. So when you're out the door, you're like, OK, look, here's how it was bad. I yeah. get that. I totally understand that. I'm not sure if that's helping the company. Because they're learning about this, of course, with someone that doesn't even work there anymore. And then for the people that might be interested, that is now out there in the public opinion. Like, oh, I don't know if I want to work for, for Google. Did you hear how they treated XYZ? Why would I want to go work yeah. there? That's crazy. So the third part of that chain, you know, we're talking about the pool, the black box of hiring. And then once you actually get there, making sure that the culture is inclusive enough for you to be there as a person of color or whatever wherever you fall along the spectrum of diversity. Mm -hmm. Because we've certainly heard from people that, and again, from these sort of hot takes from the folks that have left, the, the time th that they were there, it was not great. Yeah. You know, they were getting belittled for this, or there were comments about that. And it's like, well, is your workplace, if you want this diversity so bad, I mean, are you really taking a look at the culture and seeing what is it about your <laughs> workplace culture that is driving them away? Yeah. It's a process. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a process. <laughs> it is definitely a process. 
do you think though that if a company has like a certain number of people of color in their ranks that they are are trying to contribute to diversity? Like I know that there are some companies that are putting out their big public diversity goals. Pinterest immediately comes to mind. Yeah. About wanting to hire this many people of color and this many women and things like that. Do you think that's a step in the right direction? I think it is, but it's also a risky move in the sense that, and like I may get straight for this, but like you have to be sure that you're just not hiring people of color just because of their like race. You have to make sure that they're definitely like qualified or that they know what they are. And I know plenty of amazing black developers. So if you want referrals for people to hire for your company, like literally hit me up and I will put you in touch with a lot of the ones that I know. I think it's a step in the right direction because it's always good whenever you can walk into a company and you see a, you know, a face that you can relate to or like, you know, somebody you can share your experiences with. And you be like, oh, okay, cool. I'm not alone here. You know, I got somebody I can mm-hmm. talk to. Because, you know, you get issues that rise up, like the systematic violence or like police violence against black individuals in the United States has been, well, it's not a common trend, but it's just becoming more and more common from a media perspective recently. You know, seeing all this happening and then going into the office the next day, you kind of feel like crap because nobody knows why you feel like crap. Right. And you just want to call in while black and take a day off, a mental (laughs) health day off. Um, And... I think that having being a company that you can like have those shared experiences or like have somebody that knows what you're going through and you can relate to is really beneficial and it's a really good thing to have a company and it's a step in the right direction. Or if you have beef with somebody within the company, if you're the only person of color on your team, you can you can't really talk to anybody else about it because they might they may not understand where you're coming from, but you can have somebody else that you can talk about like your concerns as well and like get advice from also, especially if you have yeah. people of color and the leadership positions. No, that's totally true. I mean, you you don't want a bad workplace situation to pop off because you're the only person of color and someone says something and then you just go off. I speak from personal experience on that. Like don't yeah. Don't I've been I've been in that situation where you're the only and then something happens and you just go off. Like you reach your breaking point sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's enough, you know, that of course the goal is that you want to be able to show up to work 100% of yourself. But, you know, I think for people of color and for for people of color, and I think just for people that follow along the spectrum of diversity, there's so much more that goes on with that than just doing the job requirements, you know, the microaggressions and and all sorts of other things that kind of lead up to that. It's a lot. And I think if companies are really interested and serious about it, because that's really kind of one of the main criticisms is that, oh, well, companies just want they're just trying to hire more black people. They're just trying to fill quotas. It's affirmative action. Yeah, blah, blah, yeah, blah, blah, yeah. That sort of thing where even if it's goals, I think that's just going to still be the thing that people are automatically thinking of off the top of their mind. Yeah. Not realizing that diversity is not a zero sum game. Exactly. Like j- just because you're hiring more people of color and they're qualified does not mean that non people of color or non people that fall along that spectrum of diversity are just being like kicked to the curb. I'm right. pretty sure they've got other opportunities that are lined up. I'm sure they'll you know be okay. I mean? Yeah. Yeah, they'll be fine. They'll be good. Yeah. I feel you. You okay. know, don't cry for me, Argentina. They'll be fine. <laughs> exactly. So let's talk about your podcast, yeah. Two Black Nerds. What made you want to start that? So, I mean, Romeo was my partner in crime during college, like best friend. It's like a brother to me. I mean, after graduation, well, he actually graduated uh, May 2014. So they graduated on time, like all my other buddies as well. And me and Romeo were just like, yo, after like we both graduate, we should do a project together. They were just like, well, what can we do? Because I'm like, I don't know how to do hardware because Romeo's an electrical engineer. I mean, I know how to do Arduino stuff, but we're in different states. That's a no-go. 
he's like, I don't know how to code like that, other than like embedded systems and stuff like that. So but I'm like, how about a podcast? And he's like, all right, let's do it. Like, what are we going? What are we going to call it? And I'm just like, I think we both like did some ideating, like two black nerds, like it rolls off the tongue nice. We'll go with that. And it's a very like crucial part of our identity between the blackness and the nerdness. So yeah, we were like procrastinating from recording for a few months until one weekend I was like, what are you doing? Like we both bought microphones, but we didn't ever get around to recording. One week I was just like, yo, Romeo, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, nothing. I'm like, we're recording episode zero of Two Black Nerds tonight. Let's do it. And he's like, all right. <laughs> and kicked off. And here we are. Yeah. And it's been well, great. I think black, yeah, black nerds in general are kind of having their moment right <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah, it's cool to be a black nerd now. I used to get bullied for that whenever I was a little kid. But now it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Always just like my glasses. And like now glasses are cool. I'm like, okay. <laughs> do what you do. I'm not and, just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and you all talk about a number of different topics on the show. I mean, of course, you talk about, you know, tech and diversity, which we touched on earlier. But you talk about mentorship. You just kind of talk about the general post-college life and things like that. Mm-hmm. Where do you kind of see the show going from here? I saw that you all did an interview recently on Model View Culture. Yeah, I think we're going to try and get more people onto the show. I think we're going to get more and more people onto the show for interviews and likes. That's definitely, I think one of the future goals. But I don't know. We have a list, a Google Doc of just topic conversations and lists that we uh, want to talk about. And just going to go from there. I think we're going to keep around like the whole talk about the tech industry, technology, gadgets, and then interviewing, getting more and more people interviewing. And it's talking about more of our, our personal experiences as well. Because like, you know, we have two, like it's like black is nerdy and we can talk about the black experience or we can talk about the nerd experience or we can talk about the experience of the two of them combined. So there's a lot of topics that we can talk about and we can bring people onto the show that can also talk about both of those uh, experiences. So what kind of nerd were you growing up? Dog. (laughs) Video games, comic books, anime, still watch anime, not ashamed about that. Which anime are you watching? Which one am I not watching? Isn't let's see, what did I finish up? Gangsta was really good. Overlord. Oh, Gangsta's so Yo, good. But that Gangsta's that, so good. The, the ending was not. Wait, don't tell oh, me. I'm, oh. I'm like I'm like three episodes behind. Oh, my don't bad, tell bad, me. My bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw um, nine point five that did the little kind of recap on stuff, yeah. but I haven't seen ten eleven. So don't tell I me see. yet. All right, Overlord. I'm pretty much if it's on Crunchyroll, I'm on it. But yeah, okay. I was really a anime comic book type of dude. Pokemon cards. Yep, that was me. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. I still I like de-shaped who I am today, and it's all right. Let's see. For me, it was video games, comic books, music. Ooh, I didn't get into music until I was in high school. I started nerding out on music hardcore when I got into, like, backpack rap and, like, underground hip-hop. Mm-hmm. I played trombone in... So I got into music and like a well, I mean, I you know I also listened to popular music and stuff too. But then I got really heavy, and I'm still a big fan of jazz. I got really heavy into jazz and classical music in in um, middle school and high school, which was, I mean, I grew up in rural Alabama, so yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone else has Mary J. Blige or whatever, and I'm listening to Bolero from Ravel or something. So it's that sort of thing, but definitely more. I think music nerd, video games, comic books. There was some anime. I mean, like I, I mean, I'm, I grew up in the 90s, so 
so most of, yeah so most of the anime was like dragon ball z and and stuff like that and then i really got more i think in the anime once i got to college because yeah. then i i hooked up with people that were there that really like someone turned me on to evangelion yep Neo and so Genesis, that was that classic. was yeah so that was that's still my thing so yeah, I, I want to say it was sort of right around that kind of time. But, you know, the black nerd is making it's I don't even want to say renaissance. I just want to say it's sort of coming into its own right now. Yeah, it's like becoming is more accepted. Yeah. Do you think that you and Romeo, that's your co-host, do you think you two will come to build anything else in the future? Like maybe something else that's kind of media related oh, or, or anything oh, like that? we got things. We got so much on the plate. Like, we got a lot of friends. So the thing is, we know a lot of very intellectual... We have a lot of friends from Notre Dame, um, our alma mater, that are, like, you know, a lot of intellectual black folk. And we got a lot of... Well, not a lot. We have some ideas down on paper about what we're going to do and where to go next after Two Black Nerds and, like, what else we can do to, like, start creating, generating more media content and just especially within, like, the black space and, like, giving the our black voices out there for other people to hear. So we, it's going to be interesting as we bring in other, like our other friends from like other industries, such as like accounting, consulting, like mechanical engineering and all that. So I'm excited. Nice. Nice. So I want to focus this interview. I want to turn this back, you know, more onto you specifically. Now with a lot of the work that you've done, I mean, just even the fact that you've just kind of gotten out of school and this is really your kind of first big job and things like that. Have you had any mentors or people that have really kind of helped you out along the way? It's actually weird. My barber has been a pretty good mentor for me in terms of advice and my barber in Austin. And he's helped me out in that he has access to a lot of high influence individuals like within the tech industry in Austin. So I've actually met like a senior executive from Dell who's another brother. And then actually, he actually connected me with uh, my manager, connected me because my barber told my manager for my first internship, who's a black dude, which was really cool, connect me with the senior VP within IBM. And I got to grab lunch with him. And it's really cool. I have his number. I can text him up whenever. So these guys like are really good in terms of mentorship. If I ever have questions or like need general advice, they've always been out there to like whenever I need them. And just really good friends as well. It's a guy that works at Visco Cam called Devaris. He's really cool, and he's been a really good source of advice for me. Like whenever I'm, I need advice and just like general career, or like if I'm doubting myself or going through something, I can like let him know. And he's been like, okay, this is what you need to do, and this is how like you can go about handling it. If you need anything else, let me know. And Romeo is normally my first like person I ask for advice because he gives the most logical, well structured, and thought out advice from both perspectives. It's really good. You're, you're the first person that I've asked that question to that has said that their barber has been someone that has kind of been a mentor to them. But it, it sort of makes sense when you think about the place of the barbershop and, with black and men the in purpose terms of that it serves. Yeah. And like conversation. And yeah. yeah. It's like people don't understand why I love going to the barbershop. But like my barbershop, I'm going to the same, like in South Carolina, I went to the same barbershop since I was five years old until I was 18 and went off to Notre Dame. And I still go there whenever I visit. And the barbershop, the barber still recognizes me. I've seen people that I've grown up with from five years old onwards to I've seen them there all the time. And it's just a place of community. It's wild. What keeps you motivated and inspired? Keeps me motivated and inspired mostly. One, I want you got big names out in the tech industry like Tristan over um, with the work that he's doing with Walker and Company and Bevel. But what keeps me motivated really and on daily hustle about trying to be the best I can be as an engineer and keep on improving is I want to be 
I want to become like a world-renowned CTO of whether it's my co-founding a startup or another one. I want to motivate others. And like, there's a lot of dudes that have emailed me and Romeo have saying like, I've listened to your podcast or I stumbled upon your like uh, website or something. And I'm like, a lot of them have been like, I'm a senior African-American boy in high school. I just want any advice that you have for me. Like you're really inspiring and I really want to follow in your footsteps and be like you one day. So can you just let me know what you did to get to where you are now? And getting emails like that is really what inspires me. And actually, it's kind of funny because I used to babysit this two-year-old little boy of a family friend with my sisters back whenever I was younger, way younger. It was like 10 years ago or so. It's wild. Dude is like in seventh grade now, and he wrote a paper about who inspires them. Granted, I haven't seen this dude since he was like six years old, but like I, from two to six, we saw a lot of each other. And he wrote a paper about who inspires him and who he wants to be whenever he gets older. And he like wrote a paper about me, about how he wants to be like me and doing computer science and software engineering and following my footsteps to get to where I'm at now, because it seems like I really love what I'm doing and I really am enjoying it. And he thinks that just from like growing up with me, that he can have the same, like he'll enjoy it and love it just as much. So being that role model to young black men is really something that keeps me going and also just making my parents proud because my parents sacrificed a lot coming to America and like have been through a lot to get to where they are now. And I want to keep on making them proud and making sure that um, like just making them really proud of me. I was going to ask about your parents. I, I mean, when I was doing my research, I could definitely see that family is something that is really super important to you. Yeah. What are the best things that you owe your parents? Best thing that I owe my parents, I used to hate it whenever I was younger, but the best thing that I owe my parents is them forcing me to keep my nose buried in my books whenever I was younger and how they taught me how to respect myself and to know my worth and to know how much I'm capable of. So even though I'd have like 97 in terms of like average in a class and I'd still be playing video games, my parents would still make me study and I'd say I've done all my homework, I have a 97 in this class. Why do I have to study? They'd be like, oh, I don't care. Go and do your studying now. And I'm just like, okay. And But what they're doing is they're just making sure that my parents made sure that all of them, like me and my siblings, had a strong focus on our education and what we want to do and made sure that we got the best of the best Like when it came to education. They didn't want us to settle for like the smallest or to settle for like the low-hanging fruit. They want us to reach the top of the tree. And I think that's really... Uh, important like that focus on education and like doing well and respecting yourself my parents don't let people disrespect us and tell us not to let people to like disrespect us and walk all over us and if they try to sell us short to strongly correct them on that and also i guess unrelated to my career just like my whole cultural identity like those strong like values from both like and like as a broadly like Nigerian culture, but then even more specifically in my ethnic group, Igbo culture itself around community and family is something that has been really valuable to me and that, that I keep with me or I'm very close to me. So funny, my doctor, my family doctor when I was a kid is Nigerian, is also Igbo. Yeah. And I remember growing up with his family, his wife was my my AP English teacher. His son was, it's so funny now that I think about it, they were sort of like the Cosby show in that he was a doctor, the wife, well, she wasn't a lawyer, but she was a teacher. And they had five kids, four girls, one boy, and the boy was in the middle, I think. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting because they, they kind of drilled that same ethic into him as well. And I wonder if that is like 
you say it's kind of, you know, broadly Nigerian or if that's kind of a just like a black parent thing, just wanting you to do your best and not. Yeah. Not give up, you know, I think. Yeah, I think it's a black thing. But I think in Nigerian culture, something that's very, 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 very specific, because even with my parents, like even with my uh, parents, my grandfather made sure like my dad's like one of 13, I believe. My grandfather made sure that every single one of his kids went to college and got educated. So it's kind of weird because, like, my dad's, like, what, 64 now? And he's the youngest mm-hmm. in his family. So, like, the eldest was, would be around, like, 88 if she was still alive. So, oh. yeah. So even back then, even the woman and, like, even things weren't great for women, like, back whenever she was supposed to be in, like, going to school or university. So, Yeah. What advice has stuck with you the longest? And this can be career advice, it can be life advice. What's really kind of been the one thing that you've gotten or that you've heard from someone that has really stuck with you all these years? I think this is like a combination of multiple like people or just what I've heard, but like my general mantra whenever, uh, and I guess it's like, you know, like disclaimer, it's kind of like a place of like privilege to say this and like some people may see it like as a pull up your own, but pulling it up by your own bootstraps argument. But I always keep myself going by if I'm feeling discouraged or if I'm feeling I'm not like attaining like where I want to be at. Like I have to I always tell myself like, OK, hi, you create your own success. Like the world really owes you nothing. So you're going to have to like it's not going to hand it to you. The world's not going to hand you what you want on the silver platter if you're not going to move towards making like making movements towards achieving that goal. So that's really something that stuck with me. And if I really want to be somewhere to better my position, I'm going to work hard at getting there. And, you know, like I said, it's a privileged thing to say sometimes because like some people have more obstacles in life than I do. But that's something that's really stuck with me. And like to never settle for less and do your best when it comes to achieving these goals. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? You know, like it's 2020. I feel like I made a job interview. <laughs> five years i'm hoping like well i'll be 28 by then so i'm hoping i'll be running my own business by then whether it's a startup a cti startup or running a software consultancy or something i want to be running my own business in five years hopefully that's the goal because i can't be working for somebody else uh for the rest of my life i don't think that's uh me who knows? You might be running IBM by then. You yeah, know. who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, just to wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Yeah, so about me, well, you can find me on Twitter at Kruchu, K-W-U-C-H-U. You can also check out Two Black Nerds at twoblacknerds.com. And with my personal website, you can find me at ihani.com and it has ways of contacting me there so if you want to reach out to me ask any questions or just talk feel free to hit me up i'll be glad to talk with y'all all right sounds good ihani man thank you so much oh, for time, coming on the show i know Thanks that you have been well i mean you kind of invited yourself i know <laughs> you kind of came to me i was like you know i really should be on the show i'm like okay well let's Give me give me some time. We'll get around to that. But no, I think it was good just you talking about your story and talking about your work. And I'm glad I'm really glad we could kind of have a frank talk about sort of diversity and about these sort of issues, because I feel like so many times when diversity in tech is talked about, it's usually done through a filter of white women. No, I wasn't going to say that. I was going to say this. Well, it kind of is sometimes, but I was going to say, particularly when it relates to racial diversity, you know, ethnic diversity in tech, 
it's filtered through the lens of the people that have kind of, I almost want to say gone through the gauntlet, if that makes yeah. sense. Like it, it's filtered through the people that have been there and left oh. and not so much from the people that are kind of still in yeah, it. and still experienced in it. So, I mean, I think just doing that, and of course, because I think you bring an advantage to the conversation, I'm not belittling you by saying this, but just because you're young, you bring that that sort of perspective to it for those of us that are 10 plus years older yeah. that know that it was it was really bad. And now I think the fact that the conversation- I can't even imagine how bad it was in like the 90s. Like, what? If it's like this bad now, like, wow, it's wild. I can tell you when I did my interview at Microsoft, it was not- terrible i did that interview in 98 i want to say yeah no 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 no. let me take that back i was still in high school i'm thinking college that had to have been like maybe 2002 i did that interview with microsoft and it was interesting they were like oh design an alarm clock for a blind person yeah and it's like okay you know you do that they they fly you up and the way they did the interview was kind of this round robin thing and it lasted all day so you if you pass the first interview you went to the second yeah you pass the second you went to the third and i think i got all the way to like the next to last box. interview, yeah. I was tired. I did something wrong, and then they were just like, "Oh well, thank you for coming out." Like that was it. I'd be so like, it's like thank you for playing. Yeah, okay. I'd be so, so mad. But no, I think now specifically because so many people are talking about it because the industry is so aware of it that you know I think you're in a, a prime position now to really kind of reap some of the benefits because companies are are starting to change. They're starting to take into account all these things that people are saying, hopefully they're taking it into account. But mm-hmm. I think that voices now are so constant that it's hard to ignore it unless you're really just trying to. Yeah, for sure. So, Definitely. So, I mean, to, to bring all of that around again to say, you know, just thank you for coming on the show. It was really great. Oh, and thank you for having me. Thoughts of love are And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Ihanye Ekechukwu and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Ihanye and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. When it comes to email marketing, MailChimp makes it extremely simple. They have great reporting and autoresponder features, and you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. So get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover, and you can save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code 100 episodes at checkout. And lastly, there's Creative Market, which is a marketplace that sells beautiful, ready-to-use design content from thousands of independent creators from around the globe. Head over to creativemarket.com and pick up those six free goods that are available for free every Monday. And if you see something else that you like, use our discount code REVISIONPATH and save 20% off your purchase. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us get new listeners. I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.